2: Editor-in-Chief of Press Gazette, and welcome to our podcast, our brand new podcast, The Future of Media Explained. So Press Gazette's been around for many years, I've been around for many years too, uh, covering the media. We know an awful lot about it, and we'd like to use this podcast each week to explore one topic in a little bit more detail. Over the last couple of years, we've carried the slogan, The Future of Media, on our masthead on the homepage. And we've done that because we've pivoted, as they say, towards trying to give media decision makers the information they need to succeed in a a digital age. Our mission has always been fighting for journalism. And we think um, the best way we can fight for journalism and give it a good future is by helping the people who run news media companies, helping them to find new ways to turn a buck and uh, make money from quality content. So that's what we're going to try and do in this podcast. Each week we're going to look at a different theme and we're going to kick off with one which is very close to our hearts as a B2B brand ourselves. We're going to find out a bit more about B2B and why it's a good place to, to be at the moment. And to help me explore this topic, I have Press Gazette's amazing UK editor, Charlotte Tobit. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Dom. So, B2B. I'm going to start this podcast by asking a really stupid question. (laughs) You never ask stupid questions. (laughs) You're used to them, aren't you? What is B2B?
3: Basically, business-to-business publishing, so... Your websites and magazines that are giving people in a certain industry the information they need to do their job well, to do their job better and to make money and also save
2: money. And it covers a big range of things, doesn't it? So I'm thinking business intelligence, magazines, websites, a whole, a whole smorgasbord of stuff.
3: Yes, and um, we want them all to thrive.
2: Exactly. I might be right in saying, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I think it might be the biggest single bit of the media if you compare it to like national newspapers, consumer magazines, broadcasters. It's massive, isn't it? It's huge.
3: It's probably true, actually, because I think it's an underrated bit of the media. There are so many brands that people have never heard of because obviously unless you're in that industry you have no reason to have heard of it. So I don't know if you have to explain your job to every new person that you meet but I end up going to this long spiel about Press Gazette and it's four journalists but I guess every B2B brand has that same thing.
2: They're the ones that are on have I got news for you aren't they like pig growers weekly stuff like that <laughs> really really geeky stuff but fascinating if you're a pig grower. Anyway so with this podcast we're going to try and explore a topic each week, but through the medium of an interview. And uh, we've got a really great interview to kick off this week, which is uh, Mark Allen, who is the founder of Mark Allen Group. So just tell us a little bit about Mark Allen Group, because a lot of people may not have heard of them.
3: Mark Allen Group started in 1985. As you say, Mark Allen started it. He had a journalism background. He was on the Sheffield Star and Daily Express before this. Then he became the editor of Community Care and a couple of other... B2B magazines, uh, such as the Nursing Mirror. He was at uh, Reed, which is now Relics. Then he joined Thompson to set up a medical division, basically. He told me he was a bit reluctant because he wasn't sure they were committed. And as it turned out, he was right, because just over a year later, they wanted to get out of the medical publishing game. He was very disappointed and decided out of his frustration to offer to buy two of the magazines he was looking after, one of which uh, was the British Journal of Hospital Medicine, which he still owns now. And basically that started his whole journey and now they have brands in 12 different sectors including healthcare education social care aviation music and more than 400 members of staff
2: they're kind of a big deal aren't they I didn't know that he started as editor of community care I feel like even more of an underachiever than I am than I did before goodness me I should be owning a media empire by now but well done him and they're kind of a big deal aren't they so just like snapshot what what's their turnover what are they making
3: Yeah, basically for the first year of the pandemic, so to the end of March 2021, they had a revenue of 43.7 million, which was down by about 20% year on year. But that was basically just because they couldn't do live events during the pandemic. You can tell that they were still doing very well in every other sense, because their EBITDA actually went up from 8.4 million to 10.2 million. And Mark did share some Unaudited figures for the year are just gone, so the year to the end of March 2022, and basically everything's still going up. Revenue's just north of 60 million, EBITDA's 13.3 million, and he said net profits will be just short of 10 million. As he put it, it's a very strong performance given all the challenges to the media over the past two years.
2: Yeah, 60 million turnover, so they're about, I think, like about three times bigger than the Independent, which is the big. Con- so that's a really big consumer brand, and they're like making a ton more money all from uh lowly beginnings for for Mark Allen so well done Tim and he's probably making a few bob as well But well, that's probably enough of us let's let's hear a bit more from the man himself let's get into the interview
3: yes so after he told me about the start of his career I asked Mark what the first big success he had at the Mark Allen group was
4: The best decision I think I've made is that I decided with this hospital doctor magazine called British Journal of Hospital Medicine to convert that from a free magazine into a subscription-only magazine. There's been very few examples of that being successful, but I didn't have any alternative strategy because I needed money desperately. And so I set on that course. I announced that unless people... Subscribe to the magazine by a certain date they would have to if they they wouldn't receive a copy and then from thirty five thousand doctors who were getting the magazine free, I managed to get seven thousand two hundred to take up a subscription of thirty two pounds fifty and that alone generated something like two hundred and twenty thousand two hundred and thirty thousand money money that I had upfront to work on so that would prove to be a, a very good um, decision
3: I just wanted to ask you obviously talking about subscriptions and I know that's something you're still quite big on now and is also obviously a big topic of conversation in the industry so I just wondered if you could fast forward to now and say what's your current view on subscription models versus advertising and sort of that balance between them
4: I've always believed in subscriptions. Obviously, that's how we started the company in 1985, when subscriptions weren't popular with most uh, companies. At that stage, all the bigger companies were doing control circulation. So we were sort of out of the mold, different parts of the the business. Uh, So there wasn't a lot of companies that majored in subscriptions. But subscription was very important to us at the start. And it's even more important now because I think that a lot of our business is through advertising. But you know, I think uh, advertising has proved to be, you know, much more vulnerable and uh, much more up and down than than content. And, and as far as I'm concerned, and this is the, kind of the rules that that we have ascribed to our particular uh, company. And I think one of the reasons why I believe that we've been successful is as far as I'm concerned, content is absolute king. And if you put the emphasis on getting the content, everything else falls into place. That to me is the important bit. Some publishers go through the quick fix, let's put the advertise. the emphasis on developing an advertising model, getting in advertising as quickly and as fast as possible. And they don't put the emphasis and trying to ensure that the content is correct
3: so after these turbulent first few years when did you feel settled and like you were really sort of in command and knew what you were doing and had made it in this publishing world
4: I'm not certain you ever feel you've made it but certainly what happened after that we again I I had very little money but what I started doing was launching a lot of low-cost magazines in the medical healthcare arena and we were doing those off the margins they were costing us very little and, and and the strategy that we devised was we would launch a magazine a year in advance and then promote subscriptions on it and so it, it, we've got a number of magazines that started that and we we would actually represent what we thought the front cover would look like after when we launched it so we'd have names of some of the area, the therapeutic areas it was a medical magazine, then we promoted a year in advance, year subscriptions on it. So the time it got to the launch of the magazine, one of our best journals today was British, is British Journal of Nursing. The time I launched that, without a word ever being written, we'd probably got about 2,000 subscribers already in. And another magazine that we have, another journal we have, British Journal of Midwifery, about the same. So the subscriptions were actually... Paying because we are getting the scriptures in advance. So we were paying for and more, any of the costs that we're incurring. We weren't actually taking on any new staff. We were doing off the margins only when it started to work further down the line did we get any more staff involved. So that model works sort of pretty well and it enabled us to really get started. It didn't, wasn't costing us very much. But one day, a friend of mine who at that time worked for the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, got in touch with me and said, look, you've got your own company. I've I've been offered the opportunity of buying a dental magazine. Is there anything that we could do together? And I said, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're friends. Let's do something together. But I don't know very much about dentistry. And so don't worry, I know a lot about dentistry. He was very friendly with this company that had this magazine, which is called The Probe, still exists now. And uh, we went down and met the owners. It was two couples. They all had, you know, 25% share in it. It was a small little A5 magazine, but it had been around since ninety. 19- it was launched in 1959. Basically, we managed to buy that magazine for, for £5,000, uh, whereupon my friend took fright because, again, he thought the whole thing was too risky, couldn't see the way it was going. So he kind of went away. And then a couple of things that it took us a little while, but uh, I managed to get a good ad director onto the magazine and a good editor. And a little by little, we started building up the magazine. And then four years later, literally four years later, remember, we bought this magazine for £5,000, The Probe. And four years later, someone rang me up and said, you know, we would like to buy The Probe. And I said, well, actually, the probe is not for sale. And they said, we're prepared to offer a good price for it. So I said, what's your price? And they said, um, the price we would offer is 2.2 million. So I very quickly changed tack. And I said, well, actually, maybe it is up for sale. So we sold it for you know, 2.2 million. I bought it for 5,000. Four years later, we sold it for 2.2 million. And the magazine is still in other hands and still doing fine, I think. But what that enabled to me because of the, the all the problems we had with this magazine called Linked Up before, which you know led to the court action. And my balance sheet was absolutely awful. The balance sheet was terrible. And um, what this enabled us to do was to, to put right the balance sheet so that we had a decent, you know, company going forward. And that's that single kind of decision enabled us to start you know going forward
3: obviously you've talked a bit about various times where you didn't have too much on the balance sheet and difficult periods but you've obviously stayed private were there any times where you considered going public or whether that was ever a viable option for you and and why have you decided to stay more in control
4: i think that when i set up the business in 1985 I always uh, thought of it more of a marathon than a sprint. And I thought what I really wanted to do was to build up a a decent company. And, you know, so that, that was the most important thing. I didn't want to cut and run, sell, build up something else. I wanted to see if I could actually develop, obviously, with our you know, great teams, if I could develop and build up a, a half-decent a decent, uh, you know, company. So I always saw it as a, a long-term goal. Some people, you know, understandably have different ambitions. What they want to do is make a quick buck, set up a game, whatever it might be. That was never really what I wanted to do. And I, you know, shouldn't say it sounds uh, silly to say but money has never been the the ultimate thing as far as I'm concerned. To me, building up a decent company was... Was far more important than that. You know, that was the goal that I set. Obviously, during the course of time, I've had various kind of offers. Not a week goes by when I don't get about three, four, five different inquiries from from private equity. That they're always always on the phone. I tend to, I don't uh, tend to talk to many people. We've we have had overtures as far as a trade sale is concerned. I think a trade sale that there's not so many bars in the market these days. Two, three years ago, we were embarking on a course which would take taken us to, be, to do, go on to become a public company and an IPO, to do an IPO. And we had uh, hired kind of Rothschilds to help us on that course. And we spent an awful lot of time and effort uh, doing that. And over, well over a year, uh, but it, the timing was wrong. It was just before. There's lots of concerns about Brexit. And, you know, so there was very few IPOs being done. And right at the end of the day, I decided that we weren't going to go ahead with it. So we didn't do that. And I think at the time, that was the right decision. So, you know, where we go with the company from now, I'm, I'm open-minded, really. I think we've got the choices are that we we continue it is a family company it's only the only shareholders are family my son Ben is the CEO the options are we continue as a as a family company and it, the the company passes from you know one generation to another generation I'm I'm perfectly happy with, if that is the way that we want to go or there's always the possibility of a private equity deal i think there's pros and cons with that the, there's the pros are if you get it right it can um, make sense but then it all i've also heard quite a few horror stories um, private equity but there's some positive ones as well and then the other option is going back to seeing whether we do uh, an ipo but so yeah we haven't finally decided which of those options we really or a possible trade uh, deal is i suppose a fourth option but i'm not certain whether there are any companies in the UK that would really want us these days we're we're no longer a, a minnow but we're certainly not a whale and the likes of reed they're no longer involved really in publishing we wouldn't be interested in us so there're not all that many companies you know, of our size that would attract a UK bar. There may be one or two overseas. But so that's a possibility. If nothing happens, then I'm quite happy for it to retain a kind of, be retained as a family company. But family companies at their best, I think, are very good. But there's always a potential that, you know, that they can go wrong, particularly with other generations taking place. So I am aware of that. And that's, that's we're going to, we're having a meeting in the next few months where we will talk about the future of the company and what journey we really want to go on at the moment. You know, we're going along very happily and that's what our primary focus should be. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays read aloud.
3: Songs are like tattoos, Mitchell said on Blue. Having one written about you is immortality and fiction rolled into one.
4: Featuring writing from our authors including Kate Mossman on Joni Mitchell's former muse and lover, Jeremy Cliff on his journey through France before this year's presidential election, and Sophie McBain on the refugee crisis.
3: Don't die, he kept shouting. He didn't answer when Marwa screamed back, who is dying
2: ease into the weekend with our audio long
4: reads published every Saturday morning just search audio long reads wherever you get your podcasts
0: hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot
3: Just on how you grew the portfolio, and I know that you've done some big acquisitions over the past few years, for example, the Farmers Weekly. I just wondered what your M&A strategy going forward is and also how you identify what's worth buying.
4: Well, our strategy, I think, is going forward is both for organic growth. I think there's more that we can do. We're doing quite a lot of organic growth, but I think there's more that we can do to, to nurture ideas coming from our existing stable of brands and exhibitions. And so that's an ongoing thing, which I think will turn up the temperature a little bit, see if we can actually extract you know, more from organic growth. But we always have our eyes on, on acquisitions and um, what we've done in the past is that we've been you know relatively opportunistic about them if we've seen something that we believe that we can you know get for a decent sum that we don't overpay that we can develop and get some value from And then, so, you know, we've done a number of acquisitions like that, and then once we've done that, we develop synergies around it. So, for example, you know, we're engineering, manufacturing, we've got a portfolio of magazines which started from nothing really. Uh, music, we had one magazine which developed into nine or ten magazines we got on the music side. but Everything we've done, we've built strategy around it. And, you know, we haven't been too prescriptive about what we buy. Sometimes people could be critical of this. As far as I'm concerned, I like to believe that we are publishers. I'm a publisher. When we, most of our magazines were in healthcare, people identified us being a, a healthcare publisher. But I'd never consider myself a healthcare publisher. We just happened to be in healthcare publishing because there's lots of different niches in healthcare publishing. But the skills in publishing are pretty transferable. And the main thing is that we don't overpay. We have, you know, reasonable yardsticks as to when we believe we can, you know, pay off the, the consideration. So we set normally four or five years at the most and uh, that we pay off the consideration. And in some cases, we've actually paid off the consideration of our purchases in months. One magazine, that has just made us 400,000 we paid off the consideration in four months another magazine that we bought for 1 1 pound a few years ago this year has just delivered us 212,000 pound in in profit for us so it's it's looking at everything and and making certain that we can extract value but that then that all comes down in the main and this is the most important thing you can have you know, very good magazines, very good brands, very good exhibitions. But it all comes down to getting the right team in place to deliver them.
3: One final question, Mark, which is the sort of forward-looking one. with emerging from the pandemic now. I know that in your results you'd said you, you had no idea how bad it would be especially because a third of revenue was from events and exhibitions but clearly as you mentioned at the top things are going very well now so I just wondered if you could give us a bit of a forward-looking view in terms of events being back but also yeah the areas of the business in general and what's what are going to be the big areas for you next?
4: The one thing I really want to emphasize is that we're riding pretty pretty at the moment but you know in a sense what we've done today in delivering the results for 2000, or what we did yesterday in delivering the results for 2021 and today in delivering the results for uh, 2022, that's the past. That's over with. We've got at the top of the mountain, we've cheered ourselves and we paused for a second, and then we've moved on. And we're only really as good as we are now. It's, 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 there's no point in looking back and saying, what a great company we are. or We're only as good as we are today. And that really, so we're never complacent. You know, very conscious of the fact that one bad decision can really, we can fall as rapidly as you can, as we go up. In terms of the outlook for uh, two thousand and twenty-two, two thousand and twenty-three, we're actually entering again some pretty uncharted waters. It's very hard to, to be confident at the moment of exactly how things are, are going to go. Because what we do know is the Cost of living—we all know about that. We're living in a cost of living crisis. The costs of print, you know, production, distribution, energy—you know—they're—they're they're absolutely rocketing. There's a war going on in Europe, which is something I never thought was ever going to happen again in my lifetime—a major war in Ukraine. We've got no idea how that's going to impact, you know, the whole world. So we're living in extremely difficult times for 2022. It's going to be a hard slog. And the greatest things we've got to bear in mind is that we've got to do everything. And this is not just for us. Every publishing company out there, every media company, uh, the emphasis must be in trying to be as creative as you possibly can to ensure you get as much revenue coming through from the different sources. But then it's a question of really ensuring that the costs don't get out of control. And those that allow their costs to get out of control when, you know, revenue is standing still, that is a way that they're not going to succeed. They're going to, they're going to have problems. You know, that's the balance that we've all got to make. And it's going to be, you know, difficult for you know, a number of companies and that only those people, all those companies that, that remember that are going to succeed and, and go forward. Because a lot of companies, I feel not just in publishing. Quite a number of, of companies will go to the wall in the next two years or so. And those that succeed are those companies that don't live beyond their, their means, that have you know, great staff working for them, that actually are also diligent about watching all their costs. And that's, a, that's you know, hard sometimes to communicate to everyone, but I think that's going to be the, the truth going forward.
2: That was great. Great to hear from Mark Allen, legend of B2B publishing and quite an inspiring chap really and just I don't know it's glad it's good great to see him doing so well and I learned a lot more about him and about b2b publishing as a result what did you make of him charlotte
3: he's a great character i always love seeing him at industry events he's still so active and loves meeting people from that interview i'd say my big take home was how he talked about if you get the content right everything else falls into place so basically you can talk about all the whizzy stuff and where your content should be and what platforms you should be on but if your content isn't valuable and Genuinely useful to your audience, especially as a B2B publisher where you're getting those niche audiences, then there's no point, basically. And yeah, he, he talks several times about how passionate he is about subscriptions in particular, and that wouldn't work without just the basic great content. And that's what they've nailed, really.
2: Well, thanks, Charlotte. That wraps up our first Future of Media Explained podcast. We'll be doing one of these every week for, for as long as we are able, and we're going to be exploring lots more themes like paywalls, ad tech, big tech, you name it. Anything that if you're running a media company, um, you really need to know about. You've been listening to The Future of Media Explained from Press Gazette with me, Dominic Ponsford, Charlotte Tobit, and with thanks to producer Adrian Bradley. If you like it, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review and even tell a friend. And you can read more about the issues on Future Media Explained on pressgazette.co.uk.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.